The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you in these moments through Christ your Son, for we pray in his name. Amen. Nothing does more damage than bad secrets fully kept, but also nothing brings more joy and comfort than good secrets that are finally revealed. And I see the effect of bad secrets all the time in pastoral ministry, but I experience a really good secret being kept a couple of weeks ago for a surprise 40th birthday party. Pastor Josh Keller, whom you all know, he planned and kept an amazingly good secret for his lovely wife, Erin, to celebrate her 40th. And revealing that secret began with Josh telling Erin, and if you know Erin, you'll know that this will not surprise you, that she had always wanted to star in her very own music video. And so he set that up for her. And he brought her here to our church campus with Luke Nickel, who's a staff member, but also a videographer, ready here with several of her friends dressed in 90s attire to begin the video shoot. And Josh was already dressed as well in 90s clothes. He had on this, this choker of, of shell necklace here, as well as oversized grungy clothes. And he had frosted his tips in his hair. So he looked like sync and Nirvana had an adult baby. And he, he was here waiting for her. And they, they did the video shoot all over campus. But then he told her that the final location was going to be in the tent just to the north here of our sanctuary. And little did she know that 50 or 60 of us were waiting in the tent to be her crowd at her concert. And so she walked by the tent loudly singing, it's like rain for Alanis Morissette, because that was the song about as badly as that. And then she turned the corner and we were all there in our 90s attire cheering for her to celebrate her birthday. It was a wonderful secret, beautiful in so many ways. And it brought so much joy. And secrets here in chapter 14 are an integral part of this passage. A lot happens here. Secrets are kept. Riddles are told. And vows are broken. And we see the impact of it all right here in the text. But we also see what God does in the midst of it. What God does when the secrecy and the confusion and the unfaithfulness of our lives or others settles in upon us. So what does he do? Three points this morning. Number one, the parents' pain. Last Sunday, we looked at chapter 13, where the angel of the Lord visits Samson's parents. His mother, you'll notice here in chapter 14, is still unnamed. And she is so because back in chapter 13, we're told that she's barren. And those of you who have gone through the experience of infertility know how all-encompassing that form of suffering is, how it bleeds over into every aspect of your life, especially for women. I've been told it's like a cloud hanging over you. 
darkening everything just a little bit, whether it's your marriage or your sex life or your relationship with your body, your relationship with friends, your relationship with the Lord. It's all darkened just at least a little bit because part of the cloud is that there's often, I'm told, a voice that comes saying things like, your, your body is broken. You're not well. You're on the outside. Why are you even married? What are you going to do with your life? Things of that sort. And that cloud exists and that, that voice still speaks now in the modern world, especially to women. But in the ancient world, it was amplified and intensified for them because no other vocational options were really available to them other than motherhood. Culturally and socioeconomically, if you couldn't be a mother, you were nothing. Which is why Manoah's wife is unnamed because she's unnamed because she's nothing to them while she's barren. So imagine the joy. Imagine the relief when the angel's message comes to them and even the greater joy and the greater relief when the fulfillment of that promise happens and Manoah's wife becomes Samson's mother. The hope, the expectation, the excitement, not just for a child, for this woman, but for a son, for Manoah, who is not just going to be any son, but chosen by God to be special and uniquely used He'll be known and important, known by everyone, admired by everyone, and close to God, they would have imagined. But then here in chapter 14, the very first words about Samson are, Samson went down. And those words are repeated four more times, five times throughout the passage. They are our introduction to him. They are the primary description of him. He is a man on his way down. And we we have to read that literally and even geographically because Timnah was down the mountain from Samson's hometown, but we can't simply read it that way because this this is telling us so much more than just what is happening here on the outside, but also what's happening on the inside and spiritually, the unseen internal spiritual realities in play as well. The book of Jonah is similar. You may know that, Uh, even though it's written a lot later and by a different author, similar language is used. Jonah goes down three different times in the first few verses of that book. The first thing said to Jonah from God is arise, but then Jonah goes down. He goes down to Tarshish. He then goes down into a boat by the sea, and then he goes down even further into the hole of the boat and goes to sleep as if he's dead and being buried in the hole of that ship because he is spiritually, morally, that's what's happening. And that's Samson here. So imagine the parent's pain, realizing he's no different from the world, no different from others around him. Remember the the primary phrase that's repeated throughout the book of Judges that represents the people of God at this time? I told it to you last week and when we looked at this in Lent. There was no king of Israel and everyone did what? Was right in their own eyes. Well, look at verse three and look at verse seven. Get her for me, Samson demands his father. You can tell the relational dynamics are, are flipped here. The, the son is making demands of his father. The, the son is the one who's, who's leading and his will is being followed. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. There's the phrase, and there we have it. Samson is fully revealed here as a man of his times. He's ruled, he's owned by his cravings. Two different times, he shouts, get her. And the emphasis in the Hebrew is her, get her her, even though three different times the text goes on to say, but she was a Philistine. And like I told you last week, intermarriage with these pagan neighbors is basically synonymous in the Old Testament for spiritual death. And we can't read it 
anachronistically and, and read into it any modern conversations that we may be having about ethnicity or racism or nationalism. Because in the Old Testament, intermarriage was about theology. It was about the God that you believed him in and how that belief and that worship shaped your life and your culture. It's telling us that Samson is Israel here. He is Jonah as well at the bottom of the ship, so asleep spiritually and so ruled morally that he's effectively dead, dead in his soul and going the only direction that's possible for him to go at this point, which is down. And it begs the question of us, what about our current direction in life? What, what is the spiritual or moral trajectory for you right now? Where are you headed? Because places are important they're formative even. Timna here is a place, but also a culture. All Saints is a place and a culture. Students, where you go to school, it's a place and a culture. Adults, where you go and work, your firm, your company, it is a place and a culture. The city we live in is a place and a culture. The, the club you belong to, the gym that you go and work out in, that is a place and a culture. The internet sites, increasingly in a technological age, the sites we go to, they are places and they are cultures filled with people. And those people and what happens there, regardless of where it is, it will influence and form us in how we think and in how we feel and what we imagine in our very beliefs and our desires with the result that where you go and what you see and what you do there, the people there, they will take you up or they will take you down. Do not believe this modern myth of the impervious autonomous individual. It's not true. We are porous beings who are inescapably communal. So some community will win out with us. So what is that community for you? And what is your primary place? Who, who are your main people? Just read the text. Beginning of verse one, Samson went down to Timnah. End of verse three, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Even though she's wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Because places are formative for us. And this is the parent's pain. The point to the Lord's secret. Of course, this would have been painful for the parents. It would have been devastating. It is so for any parents who know the Lord as Manoah and his wife evidently do, but then see a child willfully, deliberately turn for the Lord or, or just drift away from the faith and even from them. It's devastating. Some of you know that acutely, but there's hope in this passage. For anyone who's experienced that, for anyone who's had a, a child leave, depart the faith or damage, wreck their lives or the lives of others around them. There's hope. The hope is in the secret. But before it's revealed, notice Manoah and his wife attempt to resist Samson in verse three. They try, but Timnah has had its effect and they end up going down with Samson in verse five. And so just two quick words here. One to parents, one to children. Parents, be the parents. Be the parents. Love your children by leading them. Lead them, yes, gently, but with courage and resolve. Don't think that you are loving them by following them into whatever it is that they demand or they desire, especially if that belief and that behavior you know is going to damage them and not be good for them. Do not follow them. Lead them. Be the parents. But then also children, please know and please hear me. A Christian parent's greatest desire for you is that you would truly and firmly believe in Christ and follow him all the days of your life. Nothing is more important to us, even though so often we fail at communicating that. 
And what we end up doing is communicating to you somehow unintentionally often that other things are more important, whether they be grades or sports or achievement or success or getting into this school or that school or getting a good job eventually or married or how you look or how you make us look, all of those other things. And so we owe you apology. We need to ask for your forgiveness for communicating that. And please hear me now and again say that nothing is more important to us than your relationship. And if it isn't, we are wrong because it should be. But there's hope in this passage for any and all of us. And the main key that unlocks this hope in this passage is in verse four, the secret where it says his father and mother did not know that it, this situation was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity. The secret is that the Lord is at work despite all of Samson's going down and, and, and not only despite it, but even through it, through this pagan woman that he demands be his wife. And also through this drinking party that Samson coerces his parents into throwing for him and even their capitulation to his foolishness and his hardness at heart in and through it all, God is at work. It says it was from the Lord. Now, does that mean it was God's will? that Samson do everything that he does here in this passage? Was it God's will that he break two of the three Nazarite vows that were laid upon him in the last chapter? I told you last week that a Nazarite had three vows that they embraced. One, they wouldn't cut their hair. Two, they wouldn't touch a dead body. And three, they wouldn't drink alcohol. Which are all normal and natural things, even good things to some degree. But a Nazarite said an emphatic yes to God by denying himself or herself those things. And here Samson breaks two of the three of them. He touches a carcass and he drinks alcohol. Uh, this word for feast, by the way, in Hebrew is not just the general word for feast. It's a drinking feast. And so he breaks two of the three vows as a prelude to finally breaking the third one in chapter 16, where he hits absolute rock bottom. So is this going down and these breaking of the vows, is this God's will? Well, yes and no. We have to differentiate between God's revealed will and his secret will. God's revealed will is what he tells us in his word is right and true and good. What he tells us about himself is true, who he is and and how he works in this world and everything that he has done for us, his kindness, his grace, his power, his reality, everything. And then how we are to believe and to live in relation to that. That is his revealed will. And his word is very clear on this point for Samson, for the Israelites, that they should not sleep with or marry pagan women because I will kill them spiritually. It's not God's revealed will or desire or design for Samson's life. And I have conversations like this often. I have over the years. Conversations that go something like this. Somebody coming to me and saying, Tim, pastor, I'm having an affair. I know that I shouldn't be. He's married or she's married or or I'm married. We're not married, whatever it is, but I love him. But I love her. And I don't know what to do. I'm praying to know God's will. And I have to say to them, you can stop praying right now because I know God's will for you in this. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to read any books about it. You don't need to talk to anyone else about it because so much of God's will for our life is clearly revealed in his word. And we don't have to worry and we don't have to wonder if we're in God's will. We simply have to know it, to read it, trust it and follow it. And we will be in his will. Now, God's secret will is different. It's what unknown to us and revealed to us he's doing in this world. 
and in our lives to accomplish his good and just redemptive purposes for our good, for the good of the world. And what's amazing here about that, about his secret will, is that God gets dirty, not in any way where he's the cause or the source of evil or sin, but that he channels and he directs and redeems and eventually ends it all. It's what we have here because we see that neither Samson's foolishness or his out-of-control cravings prevent the Lord from accomplishing his purposes. And he, in fact, he uses it all. One commentator put it this way. He, put, he said, the Lord can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his servants as the camouflage for bringing about his secret will. And I like that. It's helpful. His camouflage. Often, friends, the point is, our greatest hope and highest comfort is hidden in what we cannot currently see. And I've seen that and learned that through several close Christian friends who have special needs children. One of those close friends is Jordan Griesbeck. Many of you know him. He used to be our youth pastor here. He's now our college pastor at UT. And he started an online newsletter, started publishing one this past spring on Substack. You should go look it up, type in his name, go to Substack. You should read it, sign up for it. It's very helpful. But it's really for us. It's for him, but it's also for us and the church and the world on how his son's autism is revealing God and his grace and the gospel to him and to Emily and his wife, Emily, and changing them, deepening their faith and their love for one another and, and, and their son in unseen and unexpected ways. I've learned that most people in the world avoid having a special needs child at all costs. In one newsletter, he talked about that in 2019, only 18 boy or children, babies at all, were born in Denmark with Down syndrome, only 18. And in Iceland, they have almost 100% abortion rate for babies with Down syndrome. And of the 1,100 abortions in Poland in 2016, almost all of them were because of a special needs child. And those stats are about much more than simply abortion. They're also about the inability for people to imagine or to believe that anything good or anything wonderful, literally wonderful, can come out of suffering and come out of something painful. That therefore any form of loss or suffering has to be avoided at all costs. And our passage, the Bible as a whole, gives an emphatic no to that because of the God of the Bible. And in that same post, Jordan mentions the story of Fred Rogers. It's a pretty well-known story. I think I've mentioned it to you. It's been years where Mr. Rogers has this conversation with a boy that has cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair and he, he can't move. And Mr. Rogers goes up to him and they have this conversation. It's private. And then the boy is asked afterward, what did Mr. Rogers say? And the boy says, well, he asked me to pray for him. And then later, Mr. Rogers being interviewed by Esquire magazine and the interviewer says and compliments Mr. Rogers saying it was such a clever way of boosting that boy's self-esteem. And Mr. Rogers responds and says, oh, heavens, no, I didn't ask him for his prayers for him. I asked for me. I asked him because I think that anyone who has gone through challenges like that must be very close to God. And the Bible thinks the same. Again, often our greatest hope and our highest comfort, especially in our lowest moments, is hidden in what we do not and cannot currently see. That is what we have here with this image of honey from the carcass of a lion, which is a bizarre image and a bizarre passage. But it's a portrait of what God is doing here. In fact, it's a portrait of what he always does. It's an image of what he does in the face of our sin or in the face of our secrecy or our confusion or unfaithfulness. This is how he works in the world. Yes, he honors our agency. 
And no, he doesn't always prevent us from going headlong into stupidity and foolishness. All too often, he gives us over to that which we crave, which we see here. But then we find something sweet in the midst of the carnage that we have created. And that something sweet in the midst of all of our loss is what draws us and brings us back to him. It's the picture of him. Because he is the one who is always seeking an opportunity to bring what's sweet out of what's dead. And if that's true, and I think it is, if that's true, then who's the lion? Ultimately, how are we to read this bizarre text? Who or what are we to see? I say we're to see Jesus. Because more than anyone who's ever lived, Jesus went down. He went down from heaven. As God in heaven, he went down into our world, our nature, and our sin, not participating in it, but paying for it, bearing its curse and dying, being torn apart in his body, just like this line, but torn apart on the cross. And he rose from that in order that in and through his body being torn open, we might find something sweet. Yes, forgiveness. Forgiveness for any and all of our going down, but also a new life a new life in which we don't have to go down. We don't have to be ruled as we see Samson being ruled here, but we have new desires and new interests and new loves. The loves of our heart can can be unjumbled and no longer disordered as they are, where we love some things that we shouldn't love that much too much. And we love other things too little that we should love more. Our hearts can become reordered. It's a life the apostle Paul in the New Testament speaks about as being in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit the very same spirit here that rushes upon Samson and enables him to do these remarkable things. But in the New Testament, the spirit doesn't rush momentarily upon a few select people, but resides in and rests upon any and everyone who believes in Christ, which means Jesus is the lion ultimately. And the Holy Spirit is the honey of a sweet new life, a life that any and all of us, any and all of you can have. Which brings us to our third point. We're at close. And that is the Christian riddle. Samson tells a riddle here to the Philistines. And we didn't read all of the passages for the sake of time, but it's about the lion and the carcass, the honey from it, the riddle is. And it's a prelude to what will happen with Delilah because here his unnamed wife does what Delilah will do in a couple of chapters. She entices him to tell her the answer to the riddle. And then she tells the Philistines and then Samson kills them all. And why? Well, because they were told to expel all the people of the other nations from the land of Canaan, because the Lord knew that if they didn't, they would become like them, turn from him, forget him and become just like them. So intertwined that they were no different and, and they refused and failed to do that. So the Lord has to do for them what they failed and refused to do. And so he takes what Israel is as they are, as Samson is, and he uses it to accomplish his will before their good. He even uses this silly riddle that's made in a drunken moment. And friends, if you are a Christian, you are a riddle. The image of the honey and from the lion, yes, it's true about Jesus, but it's also true of you. It's true of you because it's true of Jesus. Your life is like honey from a carcass. A Christian is one who has new life and has found new life in and through death. It's what Paul says in Galatians 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. He's saying we died in Christ. Our spiritual death occurred at the cross where he he died for the payment of our sins. And 
He says, I've begun to live in, in a new way, live for something new because God himself dwells within me. In other words, a great separation has occurred for the Christian. Crucified to the world, he says at the end of Galatians. And me to the world. In other words, the world no longer holds me or rules me. I no longer have to strive for a name or live for anything in this world. Riches, comforts, pleasures, successes, gaining the approval or a name. It's all dead to me. And it dead to me and me dead to it. Because in dying by believing, I found new life. And it's sweet. It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 10. I printed one verse for you from Matthew 10, where Jesus speaks about losing your life in order that you might gain life. It could be a commentary on Samson because Samson finds a worldly life here and he loses it all. He, he loses the bet. He loses his wife. He loses himself. He effectively loses everything. And some of you have known that acutely. Some of you know it right now. You found what you thought was life and then you lost it. Jesus would say, good. Because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are so crushed by this world that the only recourse they have is to look beyond this world to God himself. Blessed are those who mourn, who appropriately mourn for their losses, but also mourn for all their foolishness and sin and turn to the Lord and seek in him something new to thirst for and new to hunger after. And the Lord himself will satisfy them. Because whoever loses his life, whoever lets go of all the things of this world as their God, as their savior, as the source of their identity or their greatest joy or their highest good and turns to Christ for that, they will find life and it will be sweet. And so do not be deceived. Paul says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God's not mocked. He will accomplish his secret will. And even when it looks like God is gone, even when it looks like all is lost and you're on your own, you're not. Even when you have gone down further than you ever have before in whatever aspect of the life that you might find yourself going down in, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, your marriage, your parenting, friendships, morally, whatever it is, God is not mocked and he is not absent. He is seeking an opportunity to bring honey from the carcass of your life. And he will because he already has with Jesus He will do the same for you. He will do the same with the world. So do not be deceived and do not grow weary of living as God's revealed will. His word directs. It is good. It is sweet. Try it. Taste it. I promise you it's better than life in Timna or wherever else you may seek to find it. So do not give up. In due time, you will reap. In due time, your life will again be sweet because your life is honey from the lion. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would impress upon us not only the realities of everything that we read of here, but also the beauties of it and the wonders of it, uh, that, that we might seek it, find it, and desire it, knowing that you are seeking an opportunity for each and every one of us, even this morning. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.